0: Day and night must for a living, feed and children.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with New Radio Media, and we'll spend the next hour talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. If you'd like to contact the show, you can call us at 844-999-9249, or you can always email us at Let's Talk Torah no apostrophes, letstalktora at gmail.com. We are ready for Purim. Today is going to be all Purim the whole day, because today, when you're listening, it is Purim. But before we even talk about the holiday itself, um, I hope everyone is enjoying those amazing hamantashen. Kelsey, you got my picture of Ah, So somewhere behind me should be a nice picture of hamantashen. Uh, for those unfamiliar, a is a three-cornered uh, pastry. Um, I think it was always filled with prunes in the old days. I would never eat those. Blueberry, apple, chocolate, lemon, um, par- I don't know, whatever they can figure out to fill in. It's basically, it's an open top. It's got three corners, and it's got uh, some type of fruit filling. So, this is the food that's, that's like, symbolic of Purim. And obviously, the word starts with Haman, right? Haman is our uh, enemy, the... Uh, He's the bad guy in this whole story, which we're going to talk about as the uh, as our hour goes along. And um, but it's called Haman Tashin. So if you look it up on Wikipedia, even it's interesting. It's not clear where the word comes from, whether it's Haman's pockets because he had money in his pocket, he was trying to buy off the king, or if it's not really Haman, it was really Manatashin, and but it was close enough to Haman, so people added it. And there's you know like all fun foods. Uh, people tried to figure out where where, where this concept of a three-cornered um, pastry came to represent the holiday. Again, there is no mitzvah. Um, I get to about that word mitzvah in a second. It reminded me of a story. There is no mitzvah to eat hamantashen, even though the box that I brought is just about empty. I'm very happy for that. So if you didn't get, there's only a few left, but at least I get a thumbs up from Tony. It was a good hamantash. But in any case, um, where did the idea come from of making this uh, three-cornered fruit-filled pastry, or Danish? So, first of all, it seems that this was common, I guess, if you go far enough back, that if your country, nation, people had a victory, you would almost create some type of victory food to remember and represent that you won. So, it could be that's how far back it goes. Um, The joke, of course, the kids say, is Haman had a three-cornered hat. Uh, But I saw very interesting, it seems—and we'll talk about this uh, when we get into the actual story of Purim, as our day goes um, along—it seems in Persia, the dice were three-sided. I'm not sure if it was—I don't know exactly it was three-sided because you can't make a three-dimensional thing three-sided, but somehow the dice was three-sided and however it fell or whatever it was pointing at, that became what the spin of the die is or was. And we're going to see in the story that Haman uh, does this lottery process to figure out what day he should destroy the Jews. And even the word Purim um, is from the word Pur, which means lot or lottery, because Haman, we're going to see, thought he was choosing the best day to destroy the Jewish people, and in truth, he was choosing the best day for his downfall. So all that is stuff we want to talk about, but again, we love Jewish food, and so I try whenever we have a holiday coming up, we bring it into the studio. I don't bring it every week, but there's enough Jewish holidays that we bring in donuts, and I bring in hamantaschen, and well, the next holiday is Passover, and besides Andy, I don't know if anybody really likes those matzah wafers. Oh, but that reminds me, before I go on. Oh, I'm sorry. And Tony loves matzah wafers. Okay? Well, of course. Yeah, fine. No problem. Anyways, so I was reminded of a story. When I say mitzvah, I keep saying this, and it reminded me of a story. very beautiful story. Um, it goes back, um, I think it was called Operation Solomon. Operation Solomon was when the Israeli government was airlifting about 10,000 Ethiopian Jews out of Ethiopia and bringing them to Israel. So, without getting into all the details of the story, but the Israeli government could, do it on the, could not do it on their own. They first of all needed money to be paid to Ethiopia, which America said no problem. And they also needed the President of the United States to basically pre-write an apology letter for being involved. That was Ethiopia couldn't feed these people. They were happy that they would leave. But it's very embarrassing that you can't feed your own people, so you sort of make it like they were taken out without our permission, and they're going to pretend to be angry, and the American president will apologize. So, so what happened was, um, the money was easy, everything was easy, but for an American president to apologize for... First of all, he didn't do anything wrong, but even if he did, American presidents, as a country, you can't just apologize, you represent America, you can't get away with that. So he called in his cabinet, and again, I don't remember which president it was, uh, 13 people there, and the vote was 6-6. Six to six. six people said he should apologize, six people said he should, he showed him that it was left to one man left, and this man was an African-American. He stands up. And he says, Mr. President, before I give my vote, I would like to tell everyone a story. Um, and the story goes like this. When I was a, a young child, so I lived in one of those tenement houses, probably in Harlem um, or somewhere, you know, in, in Manhattan. And uh, there was a fire in the building that I was in. And the fire department came, and I was there with my two siblings, and they could not get us out of the fire. The building was burning, the fire trucks couldn't get in, and all of a sudden, a large African-American man came, he bursts into the building, runs up the stairs, a huge man grabs all three of us and runs out. So, people gather around, this giant of a man, and they ask him, they said, why did you save these three children? I mean, it's beautiful you saved them, but how could you go into the fire? So, the man said, I wanted to do a mitzvah. I guess he couldn't pronounce mitzvah. He said, I wanted to do a mitzvah. And this is my mitzvah. And it seems the man actually was from Ethiopia and had some connection. I'm not sure. But he wanted to do a mitzvah. Someone took care of him. That was his mitzvah. So, this cabinet member says, Mr. President, I would also like to do a mitzvah. And therefore, I am voting that you should write the apology letter. All right. Anyways, that's mitzvah, mitzvah. It has nothing to do with Purim, but I like the story and I wanted to tell it. So, so many things to talk about today. I'm going to try to take our time, enjoy the Purim story. We're going to get to the symbolisms. We're going to get to the to all the mitzvahs or the mitzvahs that we have to do on Purim, what we're trying to accomplish on Purim. I, I told my class today, I said, uh, people don't understand. If they understood how beautiful, how much fun, how amazing the Purim holiday is, they would stay they come to my neighborhood— Stick around, enjoy the children, enjoy the the delivering of packages and running around and fun and getting together with friends and having meals. It's such a wonderful day, but if you never experienced it, so then, you know, it's uh, just another day and you're supposed to do a couple couple things extra. So I told my class, I said, you guys are so lucky that you live this holiday being an exciting day and other people never experienced it. So uh, let's talk about the story. First, got to give you a, a time frame. Where in history are we talking about? So, this is when the Persian uh, regime, whatever you like to call it, is ruling the world. It is approximately 400 BCE. Approximately, give or take, I don't know, 50 years either direction, somewhere in that time frame, approximately between 24 and 2,500 years ago. So, you had had the Babylonians had ruled the world previously. Now, the Persian Empire has taken place, um, and within about, uh, I don't know, 20, 25, 30 years, the Persian Persian Empire will fall, and the Greeks will start to take over, just to give you a little bit history. So, we have this king. In Hebrew, he's Ahashverosh. It seems, according to different people who are trying to figure out which Persian king it is, it seems a very similar spelled name in English. There's X's there. I don't know how to pronounce them in Greek. But um, it seems to be that's the right time period. He has now taken over the country. He's the king. Uh, he married the daughter of the last king, a guy by the name of Belshazzar. Not so important for us. Three years into his reign, he makes a humongous party. Now, when they made parties, it wasn't for a week. This was a, a, a six-month or 180-day party. Why was he making this big party? So, two things were happening. Number one, he had moved his capital. The capital, wherever it used to be, moved to a place called Shushan. The joke goes that he wanted a certain throne built. So, he built this humongous throne, and the throne was so big, after they built it, they realized they couldn't move it. So, the king says, I want my throne, so the throne can't come to me, I'll go to the throne. That's the joke, but it may be true. In any case, he makes a big party for 180 days. Why? So, you have to know, the, the prophet Jeremiah said that the Jewish people would be in exile for 70 years. And in those days, everybody—Jew, non-Jew—they knew what the prophet said. They knew what Torah said. They, they knew. There weren't that many books. They knew. And they understood that when this prophecy takes place, the Jewish people go back to Israel, go back to Jerusalem. And and the kingdoms, for example, of Persia, would fall. So every king would try to make his own calculation, hoping that according to my calculation, the 70 years are over. Once the 70 years are over, so I don't have to worry about God anymore because the prophecy didn't happen. So according to pr- um calculation, the 70 years is now over. 70 years is over. I can make a party. Not only that, at the party, he pulls out the vessels from the temple. And that was when Nebuchadnezzar, probably uh, almost 70 years earlier, when he had destroyed the temple, he took all the gold and silver and vessels, and he took them with him, and it's been passed down. And so, Ahasuerus takes him out to show off that God is done, he's not saving his people, and life will be fantastic. But Ahasuerus is going to be punished for playing with the vessels, and we'll see his wife— who is she's really why he's a king because she is really the queen because her father Vashti, her name was um was the king before so uh, she's gonna be killed so what happens so they're there after 180 days is another seven-day party this seven-day party was for the local inhabitants of shushan that the king is having a private party with them jews were invited jews went Mordechai said they shouldn't go. They didn't listen to Mordechai. They went anyways, because they figured politically it would be important. So, they showed up. and um, But actually, on the Sabbath, the Jews went home because it's Sabbath. They didn't stay for that day. And the king and his officers get into a drunken debate. And they decide, and I guess this was not unheard of in those days, um, the king thought it would be a good idea that his wife, Vashti, uh, should come in front of all his advisors to show how pretty she is. Um, the commentaries say he wanted her there naked and I was coming to crown, show off, because they didn't really care about clothes so much. This was they were into beauty, the Greeks were into beauty, everything was the body. So this is not an unheard of type of concept. And Vashti refuses to come. Now, it is debatable why she refused. You could tell me she refused to come because she said you're drunk and I ain't coming in in front of your boys to show off. Or the commentaries say that uh, God put pimples on her or other things that made it very ugly. She wouldn't go. So the king doesn't know what to do. He's now been embarrassed in front of his advisors. He tells his wife to come and she tells him, remember, you're only king because of me. And that for sure eats at him. And uh, he doesn't know what to do. So, interesting, he turns to his Jewish advisers first, and the Jews are smart. They say, Your Majesty, we cannot um, deal with capital punishment. We are no longer home, we're not in Israel anymore, we don't do capital punishment. Because they knew that no matter what they say, they lose. You say, forget about it, you're insulting the king. You say, kill her, three days later, when the king wakes up, you're all dead. So, they left it to other advisers. So, the commentaries say, even though his name is different, that our friend Haman gives the advice. And the advice is wild. He says, Your Majesty, if you're going to allow your wife to show disrespect to you, what will all the other women think? Right? The joke is, what kind of wife Haman had? What will everybody else think? You must either banish her or execute her. No one should think that a wife could be disrespectful to her husband. Okay, neither of these people are living in a real world, but that's fine. Um, Somebody just said today, a cute line I heard, he said, you have a choice, you can either be happy or right. Right? So, you want to be right, your wife is angry at you. You want to be happy, so tell her whatever she wants, it's all good. Trust me, it works. Um, Like the flowers we talked about earlier. In any case, so Ahasuerus listens to him, and he executes his wife. That gets us to the end of the first chapter. Now Ahasuerus is without a wife. Now, it's important to know the story— that we're going to tell, takes place over about a 14-year period. It is not a, an hour story that took, you know, it was like a sitcom. It didn't take 45 minutes for the whole story to take, to take place. That's not happening. Ahasuerus wants a new wife, got to find a wife. So what's interesting is they put out a proclamation that the king is looking for a new wife, but people didn't show. In other words, they understood that he's going to basically create a humongous harem So basically, free women, and uh, people weren't interested. So they actually had to hire, or not hire. They had to have soldiers parade throughout the country finding girls. They had to find girls for this beauty contest, which it seems they didn't want to go to. In Shushan is where Esther and Mordechai live. Um, Esther is Mordechai's niece. And they spot Esther, and they take her, and it was like a year-long process. In those days, your perfumes and oils and stuff, when you were going to get ready to see the king, it was a year-long process. Again, I'm trying to show you the story is taking place over a long period of time. When it's Esther's turn that night, she goes to Achashverish. God puts in his head he should love Achashverish, he should love Esther. And uh, he says, okay, Esther, you are my new queen. What's uh, interesting to think about, this Esther, the last thing she wants to do is marry this king. She's a Jewish lady. She's not interested in marrying, even if he's a king. Now, she listened to her uncle. They had no choice. It's not a choice. She's being taken against her will. But Mordechai says to her, do me a favor. This is a very cosmopolitan type of city. No one knows who anybody is. Just because I'm your uncle and you lived in my house doesn't make you Jewish. You could be from anywhere. So, don't tell anyone you're Jewish. And as a joke, one of the things my kids always tell me is, one of the great miracles of the Purim story is that uh, Esther kept a secret that she didn't say she was Jewish. She becomes queen. The king tries to figure out who her family is. He sends presents out to people. He offers to take off taxes. Everything he offers, Esther is not really interested. She doesn't say. And I see we're getting to our break. So uh, we're going to have to get back to our story of Purim. So hold through the break and we're going to get more into the background of what's happening with Purim and Esther and Achishrevish and Merdach and Haman. So you're listening to Rabbi by Two and Let's Talk to and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Pop That Culture. That's the horror movie. (laughs) Bury the phone in the fat cemetery. It's got a cord. (laughs) I'm Ben Rose for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians and a playlist curated by me just for you. Hello, folks. Welcome to the Greg Russell Movie Show. When I have a couple cocktails, everything's funnier.
0: (laughs) I still just love that line. Producer, director, how did this whole thing come about for you?
1: detroit it's the home of some of the world's most talented artists it's where techno and motown were born it's a city where you can experience raw untamed rock and roll i'm ben rose and i'm inviting you to join me weekday afternoons from four to five for the motor city juke joint i'll have interviews with musicians info on what's going on around town and a playlist curated by me just for you it's all right here on NewRadioMedia.com. Radiomedia.com.
0: Can that itch be caused by stress? Now we already know that stress can increase your odds of everything from colds to cancer, and now there's new research to suggest that stress can also make you itch. You see, it seems clear that stress activity is the immune system of mice, making them itch, and the experts say the same is probably true for humans. The study from the University of Medicine in Berlin and McMaster University in Canada found that stress can exacerbate skin disease by increasing the number of immune cells in the skin. Of these immune cells are believed responsible for initiating and perpetuating skin diseases that can make you itch. The report in the American Journal of Pathology indicates that doctors were able to prevent stress-induced increases in white blood cells in the skin by blocking the function of the proteins that attract these immune cells to the skin in the first place. Now, more work is certain to come in this area of research. With another prescription for your health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman.
1: So we're still on. That's my Purim song. Excellent. So we're still in the story. And again, to give you an idea, um, whenever God is looking to punish the Jewish people, he always makes sure that all the pieces are in place. So if they repent and they do what they're supposed to do, God has it all set up that everything will flow very smoothly. So we put in place that Haman gave the advice to kill Vashti. We put in place that Queen Esther is the queen, and now we need the next piece of the puzzle. So, Esther is now in the palace, and she tells the king, and again, this was not unheard of. She said, the king, you know, he should have a Jewish advisor. All oh, kings in those days, it was famous. They had Jewish advisors. She happens to know a great guy. This guy, Mordechai. So, the king says, no problem. And again... Because it was this cosmopolitan city, I think it's really a good word, it didn't occur to anybody to think, well, Mordechai and Esther are friends, must be Esther is Jewish, because this was like an international city. So, you're friends with everybody from different countries. So, just because your closest confidant is Jewish has nothing to do with Esther. So, Mordechai is by the gate, and he hears two officers of Ahasuerus planning an assassination, Not a coup, but they just wanted to kill Ahasuerus. Now, it sounds a little strange. Like, why are people um, plotting publicly to kill the king in front of one of his officers? That's, like, dumb. So, the answer is that, as I told you, people came from around the world. So, these two guys, uh, their names were Big Sun and Seresh, came from a place called Tarshish. No idea where Tarshish is, but it has its own language. So, if you were coming from a foreign country and you knew that the only Tarshish guys there, you and your buddy, you don't assume that this Mordechai with a long white beard speaks Tarshish. He speaks Hebrew. He speaks Yiddish. He speaks Persian. He speaks, I don't know, English. He's not speaking Tarshish. Right? You ever—I mean, you've all traveled places, I hope, and you hear different languages bouncing around. People know—look, our parents always did it. Right? Right? If they, if they came from Europe or they spoke a different language, I had friends whose parents spoke French in front of them. Yiddish for in Jewish houses. By my in-laws, it was Hebrew. You speak a language the kids are not familiar with. That's how you tell secrets. That's normal. So the, But they didn't know that Mordechai was part of what was called the high court or the Sanhedrin. And the rule in the Sanhedrin was you had to be familiar with all the world's languages, or the 70 basic languages. So, they didn't know that Mordechai understands, so they plot an assassination attempt. Mordechai reports to Esther. Esther reports to the king. They have their soldiers do their research, and or his spies do his research. And sure enough, it's true that there's a plan. However, they figure it out. Not so important. And Bigson and Saris are executed. And interesting enough, Mordechai is not— rewarded. He gets put in the King's Chronicles. Mordechai saves King's life from assassination blood. Uh, Bigson and Sarish are hung, which is wild, like no money, no power, no prestige, nothing to say, thank you very much, which, again, this is all part of the setup of the whole story. The whole story is a setup. So, once everything is in place, now—and that's what happens a few years later in the story—Haman becomes prime minister. Again, if you lived, if you read the story, so it looks like it takes place pretty fast. And when I tell the story, it looks like it goes pretty fast. But if you were living in those days, you would not have put anything together. Esther has nothing to do with Bigson and Seresh and, and Mordechai and Haman. All these details have nothing to do with each other. You need the book of Esther, the Megillah, to put it all in perspective and tell us it's God's hand throughout the whole thing. Haman now becomes in charge. Now, when the, you know, with I, I hate to say you know, but I guess you know, when people become very important and they be, and they're wealthy, and Haman was the wealthiest man of his time. So you have all the money you want. You have all the prestige you can get. The problem is what's left. You, you, there's nothing that you can't have. So the only thing that you must have is honor. And anyone any fly any speck that dis disrespects you that lowers your honor you can't handle it so Haman is so powerful he has everybody bowing down Mordechai refuses to bow debatable why he's really a person nothing wrong with bowing down to a person some say he had an idol hanging on a necklace so therefore Mordechai wouldn't bow Um, Others say that there was an earlier story where Haman and Mordechai were generals for and Haman spent all his money on parties and Mordechai had supplies. Haman had to go to Mordechai and uh, beg and plead to borrow money. And the cost was that Haman is Mordechai's slave, but it was private. It was like a private document that's in Mordechai's back pocket. Haman sees Mordechai doesn't bow, and that makes him crazy. I mean, it's wild. Does the whole world bow down to you? You're the most powerful person in the world, and one guy doesn't bow down to you, you can't handle it. It's amazing. We'll talk about low self esteem with an author about that in a couple of weeks. Just had a whole great book, a wild story. We'll talk about it in a couple of weeks. Um, I, th- I think actually May 2nd. Watch that date. That'll be she's an amazing lady. In any case, um, So, Haman is incensed, he can't handle it, and he decides, it's not enough for me to just execute Mordechai, really, nothing should have stopped him from executing Mordechai. Just execute him, be done with the whole thing, like the guy bothers you. You got spies, you got soldiers, kill the guy. No, it's not good enough for me to go ahead and execute Mordechai. I have to destroy the whole Jewish people, I mean, the guy's a lunatic. But that's what he decides. And he gets pretty close to carrying it out. So, he goes ahead and says, I got to find the right date. So, they did all kinds of, uh, I don't know, black magic. He's trying to find the right day with his lotteries. It's debatable how he did it. Uh, One was for months, one was for days of the year. So, if there's, for argument's sake, uh, 354 days in a lunar calendar, which is what they used. So, you have one set of lots, one through 354, and then you have 12 months. So, the number has to fit into... The number has to fit into the month. So, he comes up with the month of Adar, which is 11 months from the day that he's doing the lottery. And some say it could even be 12 months. There were two Adars, but okay, we're not going to worry about that. Um, And it comes out to the 14th of Adar. So he said, "Okay, this will be the day we'll wipe out the Jewish nation. So people say, as a joke, so one day? You can't kill everybody in one day. A week? What's a day? So, some say that Haman thought to himself, he said, look, the possibility exists that I'll lose. If I lose, it's going to be a massive holiday. Better to be a one-day holiday than a week-long holiday. So, the joke goes. In any case, so Haman has his day set up. He believes it's a good month because Moses died in that month. He believes it's a good month to destroy the Jewish people, and he meets what Ahasuerus. Now, you have to keep in mind, the, the Megillah, or the Book of Esther, is being written—or was written soon after—while this Ahasuerus is still king. You cannot write um, this scroll, this book, and put down the king. You can't do that. In other words, he's going to see it, and if you put down that the king is a wicked fellow, uh, it's not going to go well. So clearly, when the story is written, um, it's written in such a way that it's hard to tell Either Vachashverish is a fool, or if he pretends not to know, or in this story he can say he didn't know. The way the story is written, it's hard to tell. Commentaries say he knew good and well what was happening, but again, from the book, you can't tell. Come and comes. There's a nation. They're spread out. You don't need them. They have different laws than you. They don't. They don't really respect you. Here's ten. We talked about it last week. Here's ten thousand silver loaves. It's a humongous amount of silver and uh, I'll put it in your treasury." Or some say he was going to give it to charity, so it would be a merit, like, by the Jewish people, and uh, I'll kill him for you. We'll be done with it. So, Ahasuerus gives a fascinating answer. He says, No, Haman, you keep the money. Keep the money. I see this is so important to you. Again, some say that Ahasuerus knew good and well who Haman was referring to. Again, The way the story is portrayed, you can imagine that Ahasuerus is clueless, which is kind of strange. But again, you're living in Persia, you cannot write the real story because that uh, that won't go over well with the king after you write your book. So Haman is given the king's signet ring. He can make any rule he wants, any law he wants. He immediately sends out, because he doesn't want the king. To change his mind, he immediately sends out um, letters to all the provinces around the country that on this special day, we're killing the Jews. Some ask, so, like, if you knew that it was open season and killing Jews, what are you waiting till the 14th for? So, some say this is not the first time a letter was sent out to other provinces, as we said in the last segment, that uh, they already sent out the amazing letter from Achishveri saying that women have to respect their husbands. So, since that letter came out first, the people said, you know, this king he sends out strange letters. So, even if the letter says kill Jews, we better wait and make sure that's exactly what he's looking for. So, um, so Haman has all these letters sent out across the country, and Haman and Ahasuerus are partying. The Jewish people, certainly in Shushan, they know already what the letter says. The rest of the country hasn't found out yet. And, um, and the Jewish people start to cry. So, Mordechai is already crying. He puts on sackcloth and ashes, but now the problem is he can't go to the king's gate, because when you're in front of the king's gate, you have to be very, very presentable. So he can't get the message to Queen Esther of what's going on. She's in the palace. She's clueless. People in the palace don't know what's happening day to day. She has no documents. So, But once Esther discovers that that, that Mordechai is not coming in, he's wearing sackcloth and something's wrong, so she has one of her trusted messengers go back and forth. And in that back and forth, Esther gets the message that we're in trouble. And Mordechai wants her to go to immediately. What's interesting is Esther says, I cannot go to Ahasuerus immediately, we need to do something else first. And we're going to talk about what that first thing was when we come back from the break. So you're listening to Rabbi Tzvi, special Purim edition on Let's Talk Torah, and we'll be right back. I'll tell you what happened. G'day I got the sauce! We're at C2E2 with the legendary Chris Claremont. Greetings, my fellow geeks. My name is Jordan Trevilian and this is Get It to the Geeks. We are here with David Yost, the original Blue Power Ranger. Nobody right. promised you when you bought the thing on PS4 that you could play it on Switch. But
0: your, your excuse is garbage.
1: I'm gonna pull out my crossbow. All
0: right, sweet chainmail armor. Let's see what you got. <laughs> the latest LiftMaster garage door openers, and the toughest retractable screens on the market, all by the push of a button. Tarno Doors is celebrating its 50th year anniversary and is the recipient of the 2016 Subcontractor of the Year from the Home Builders Association. Tarno knows
1: doors. Tarno knows doors.
0: Surfing the Internet can be good for your brain, especially if you're getting up there in years. UCLA scientists say that the internet searching helps to stimulate your brain function by triggering centers in your brain that control decision-making and complex reasoning. In a study to be published in the American Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry, the researchers say that using the internet to seek out new information might stimulate the brain enough to sustain brain health and your cognitive ability. Before the computer age, the one activity that was linked to an active mind was solving crossword puzzles. The fact that even simple tasks like searching the internet might enhance your brain circuitry suggests that our brains are really sensitive to mental exercise and actually continue to learn as we grow older. So using an internet search engine such as Google produces the same brain activities as reading, but it also increases activity in areas of your brain that control decision-making and complex reasoning with another prescription for your health. I'm Dr. Jim Bragman
1: be thankful for my It's like I never lesson And we're back continuing with the Purim story. So Mordechai has told Esther. Obviously, God set up the whole thing, and you need to go to the king and tell him who you are. You got to do it. Esther starts with excuses, bad timing, king hasn't spoken to me for a month, he'll call me any day. Mordecai won't put up with any excuses. Mordecai will not put up with any excuses. Mordecai says, you got to go now. So Esther says, okay, before I go, we got to pray. There's no way I can go in unprepared, and unprepared means without prayer. So Esther tells Mordechai, let everybody fast for three days. That's like the ultimate kind of fast, a three-day fast, because you can't really survive much past that. She'll fast. Mordechai will fast. The Jewish people in Shushan will fast, because they knew what's going on, and then I'll go to the king. On the third day, um, I'll go to the king. So Mordechai says, no problem. He goes and tells everybody they're all fasting, and now Esther is going to the king And the problem was she hadn't been called. And the rule was that if you walk in uninvited, so first they kill you, and then they ask you what were you doing there, which is a little bit of a problem. So the only way you're saved is if the king stretches out his scepter, and then you go touch the scepter, and then everybody's fine and dandy. So Esther goes in. And uh, God sends angels, and so Ahasuerus sees her, and they stretch out the scepter, and she touches it. So Ahasuerus realizes, you put your life in danger here, my dear queen. Obviously, this is very, very important. What would you like? Whatever you want, he says. In the book of Esther, it says, up to half the kingdom, I'll give it to you. In other words, whatever you want, you can have. What do you need? What's so important? So she says, well, you know, I would like to make a private party for the king and Haman. And they go to a private party, and she doesn't say a word. They have a whole party, and Esther doesn't say anything. So the king says again, Achshari says, Esther, you, you put your life on the line to come talk to me. We're here at the party. Tell me what you want. Esther says, you know what? I'm not ready. We'll make another party tomorrow, and tomorrow I'll tell the king what he's been waiting for, and that is what nation I'm from. So, a little bit you got to wonder, like, why is, why is that Esther's plan? And as Mordechai said, go tell him you're Jewish and let's get this over with. So Esther understood that we got to kill Haman. So there's a lot of ways to do it. We got to get the king jealous. Why is Haman being invited to a private party? There's also a concept that wicked people are given a lot of uh, leeway and, and ability to do wicked things. But well, when they get to a certain point, like a roller coaster, when they get to a certain point, they get to the top. From, from the top, it's straight down. So the question is, we said honor is important to Haman. Has Haman received enough honor yet? Clearly, this first party, since God didn't do anything, Esther didn't know if Haman had, had reached the pinnacle. In truth, this is the top of the line for Haman. Haman comes out, he's so happy, he's most powerful, the queen's inviting him, and he sees Mordechai not bowing to him, and he can't handle it. Again, you are with kings and queens, and you're worried about some guy? Like, what gives? He can't handle it. He goes home. He says, I must talk to my wife and children. We're going to figure out a plan for this Mordechai. So, his wife tells him, you know, obviously, this guy Mordechai is really bothering you. Let's make a gallows. 50 cubits high, because when Murdechai is swinging on it, you'll be able to observe Mordechai swinging when you're eating the meal with the king and the queen. Nothing could be better. Now, interesting enough, Zeresh, that's the name of Haman's wife, she tells Haman, go to the king in the morning. Go to the king in the morning. Haman, for whatever—we don't want to say whatever, part of the plan—Haman says, why wait till morning? Me and the king are close. I'll go two o'clock in the morning. Meanwhile, Haman, in this way, is clueless. He's not looking to rebel against the king. Life is great, except for this Mardachai guy. The king, on the other hand, can't sleep. The king says, my queen is inviting my prime minister. Maybe they're trying to make a coup. Maybe they're going to assassinate me. Maybe something's going on in the palace. I don't know about. Why is Haman getting invited? So this king is quite jealous and quite disturbed. He can't sleep. So he tells his, uh, whoever servant takes care, he says, bring me my chronicles. Um, let's check it out. In other words, in those days, one of the ways for a king to protect himself was if somebody saved your life and ratted his buddies out, you give him a big bag of gold. So everybody knows that it's worth tattletaling on somebody to the king because you're going to get paid for it. So Ahasuerus says, if there's a plot going on, someone should have told me they know I pay bags of gold for starting up with me. Maybe there's someone I didn't reward yet, so people figure this king doesn't, uh, doesn't say thank you for favors, so uh, I'll find somebody else. I'll go with the new king. He'll pay for favors. So they read, and they get the story of Murdechai and Bigson and Seresh, and the king says, what was his reward? And the servants say he didn't get a reward. So now everything is now in place, all the puzzle pieces, all the chess pieces, and Haman is walking right into a trap that he couldn't even imagine. So it's the middle of the night. So you're Ahasuerus, and you think Haman is planning to kill you, and he's knocking on your door in the middle of the night. Hello? You, two o'clock in the morning? Did I come bother the king? She come tomorrow morning. So the king calls him in. And now the king does something massively psycho- psychological. He asks the perfect question. He says, Haman, what should be done to the man whom the king wishes to honor? Now, honor is not money. So Haman automatically thinks, look, I'm the only guy that doesn't want money. Everybody else in the world wants money. I got more money than I know what to do with. Obviously, the king is referring to me. So again, Haman is clueless. He, he does not realize what's going on. He has a king who thinks that Haman is trying to assassinate him or take his wife, Um, and he asks him a very innocent question. And Haman answers, oh, your majesty, if you want to anybody who wants to be honored, he should ride on the king's horse, and he should wear the king's crown, and he should wear the royal robes. So again, the king is thinking, this guy wants to assassinate me. Now the guy says, I want to parade around looking like the king. you couldn't ask for more trouble. So, Ahasuerus says, that's a great idea. You're going to go do that to Mordechai. So, the jokes go, oh, which Mordechai? A lot of Jews named Mordechai. How do I know which Mordechai. So, the king says, you'll take the robes. You will parade through the streets with Mordechai. Haman has no choice. Obviously, can't ask right now for Mordechai to be hung. He'll deal with that later. So, he goes to Murdechai, happens to be Murdechai is praying, which, again, is a reason why prayer is so important in 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 uh, relating to the story of Purim and, and our being saved, and Haman says to Mordechai, he says, "I gotta I gotta parade you through the streets." So the commentaries say that Mordechai said, "Oh, I've been fasting. I gotta take a bath and a haircut." And Esther closed all the all the bathhouses in honor of his parade. She obviously was right there hearing the whole story. Um, Haman happened to have been a barber in his early days, so Haman has to be a barber, and he parades Mordechai through the streets. And there's thousands of people, and they're cheering, and Haman is leading, such shall be done to the man, and the king wishes to honor. And uh, Mordechai gets paraded through, and Mordechai is dropped off by the king's gate, and Haman has to get ready for the party. So again, it's not really over in Haman's mind yet. Yeah, the story's not over. There's still a chance for Haman to uh, to win. Interesting enough, his wife warns him and says, that's not how it works when you start up with Jews. You can start up with Jews and they go all the way down to the dirt. But once the seesaw starts to change, it completely changes. There's no, there's no going back. So she was trying to hint to Haman to be humble, but he completely missed the message and he goes to the palace and he goes to the party. At the party... Esther now sees all these things have happened, now is her chance. So the king says, Esther, what do you want? Interesting enough, um, if you look carefully at the words, the king thought that Esther was a commoner. so it seems in public at least he would speak to her through an interpreter because royalty does not speak to commoners. Esther says, I am the great-granddaughter of King Saul from the Jewish people, the first king of the Jewish people. Immediately, Achishverosh realizes he married royalty. And she says, I'm Jewish. So the king says, what's wrong? So she says, what do you mean? There's a wicked man in this room that wants to kill me. Now, she plays the game. She tells Ahasuerus, she says, this guy, he killed your first wife. Now he's trying to kill me. The excuse is he wants to kill the Jewish people, but really he just wants to get me. There's an amazing power when we, when we put things on an individual instead of a whole group. So Haman, so Ahasuerus is like floored, like, what's going on over here? And Haman doesn't know what hit him. So it says the king goes out, Haman wants to plead before Esther. Um, Some say an angel pushed him on top of Esther, or the book says he fell. And uh, the king comes back, and he sees what's going on, and he says, cover his face. And he's then told by one of his advisors, hey, Your Majesty, can you see over there, Haman's house, see that big tall gallows? Haman made that gallows for Murdechai, your trusted advisor. So the king thinks to himself, the guy in his mind wants to kill me. He wants to kill my trusted advisors. He wants to take my wife. And he makes a 50-cubit gallow for what? Did he plan to put anybody else up on that gallow, right? All psychologically thinking it's him. So the king says, Haman should be hung. Now, again, as we said earlier, earlier in the story, very important to keep in mind, um... Esther says, right, I'm Jewish, and there's a guy, a wicked guy in this room who wants to kill the Jewish people. Didn't Ahasuerus know the story from Haman of who wanted to kill the Jewish people? But the verses make it sound like that uh, Ahasuerus doesn't really know the whole plan. And again, the simple reason is because if um, if Ahasuerus—if we would write the truth that Ahasuerus knew the whole plan, he would look wicked. And you can't write a story about the king of your country saying he's wicked. I mean, obviously, in America, we can write whatever we want about people. But in those days, it was not a healthy thing to write that the king was a wicked fellow. You probably wouldn't live very long. Haman is executed. Now, really, really, what should happen is, since Haman was the author of the letter to annihilate the Jewish people, he's dead, so the decree should be null and void— but Ahasuerus was not willing to nullify the loan, to nullify the, um, the decree. He said, I'm sorry, you know, it's very embarrassing, like the story we said before. Right? If a king writes a letter, you can't just throw it in the garbage. You can't do such a thing, like my story of my mitzvah earlier. Right? You can't just uh, ignore what I wrote. Now, this is, by the way, taking place a few months after. So they come back, and, uh, and Esther is pleading with him. So the king says, look, I already gave you Haman's house. The world sees that I'm on your side. But I tell you what I'll do. You could write another letter. Write anything you want. You can protect yourselves. The king's behind you. You write another letter. They rewrote another letter, and they sent it out. And and then, okay, I guess we'll get to the very end of the story. Oh, I still have time. I, I, I have 46 and 47. It's amazing. One day we're going to change this. I'm going to get myself—I know it's 48. I know, I know. Anyways, in any case— So then, a few months later, the Jewish people, um, there's a war. There are those that want to kill the Jewish people. It says 75,000 Persians were killed, or whatever country they were from, not Persians, but probably uh, from other countries. And the 10 sons of Haman were killed, and they were hung. And so everybody lives happily ever after. Um, And because of this story, this is really, for the most part, the end of the story. Um, But when we come back, Um, There are four mitzvahs, four commands that we do, some of them we talked about, hamantaschen is not one of them, by the way, but there's four things we do to show our appreciation that God did this tremendous miracle. We're going to talk about why it was a hidden miracle with our couple minutes left. Um, Maybe we'll just touch on one for a few seconds. One of the things we do is we send um, food platters back and forth to people. And that's something that... Oh, there comes the music. All right, fine. I'll do it when we come back. So you're listening to Rabbi Tzu, our new on New Radio Media. And we're talking Purim and the story of Purim. Hold through the break. We'll finish it up. And we'll wrap up a fantastic show. We'll be right back.
0: Hi, I'm Andy. And I'm David. Join us for fun and adventure on our new show, Podquesters, where we fight through imaginary battles, And pray to the Dice Gods for good rolls. Yes, it's an epic sweeping adventure. We try to fulfill our destinies without driving the Dungeon Master crazy. I thought that was the point. Anyways, check us out here on NewRadioMedia.com, Fridays, podcasters. See you there. times we see a guy running down to first base and it's it turns into a hobble
1: yeah i mean
0: that's getting umped i
1: can't be the same guy can't be the same guy yeah what's up this is your boy Walter jones also known as zach the original black ranger and you are geeking out with geek taming weekly at new radio media it's not the time
0: The BG song, Stay Alive, just might help someone you know stay alive. It's one of those beats you just can't get out of your head once it's there. And it turns out the disco song has 103 beats per minute, which happens to be the perfect number to maintain the rhythm for performing CPR. A study out of Illinois found that doctors and medical students who listened to the song while they were practicing CPR not only performed flawlessly, but they also remembered the technique five weeks later. The T's to CPR are performing the technique aggressively, that is, pushing hard enough and pushing on the chest fast enough to force the blood to where it needs to go. So when it comes to proper technique, it turns out that compressing the chest to the beat of staying alive really can help the victim stay alive. With another Prescription for Your Health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman.
1: More Purim music, if we can hear it. See, Purim. So, Kelsey, before I go on, I might as well get my poster up again. Thank you. So, we're really the same poster, the same letter as last week. And I'll tell you why. Because pay, which is nu- the numerical value of 80, is the first letter in Purim. And since we're talking all Purim, how could I not reuse that poster? I'm sure no one will mind. A great pay word, and that's Purim. So, on Purim, we actually have four commandments. Number one, we read the book of Esther to remind us of the story. Number two, we send food packages—kids to kids, adults, men, women, friends, neighbors, relatives. Sending food packages—if you remember my friend Barry Shore from a couple weeks ago—giving creates love. Creates love, creates harmony, and one of the things that we want to take away from the whole Purim story— is when the Jewish people are together, then there's no stopping us. We're our own worst enemy when we fight, and the idea of sending the food packages back and forth creates a tremendous amount of love, of brotherhood, of friendship, and there's nothing that could be better for anybody. You want to be a friend with somebody? Send them stuff. Send them food. They send you eat with people. So that's the second command. Uh, the third mitzvah is to make sure that poor people are taken care of. So, there's a special command to give money or food to poor people. Again, because we want everybody sharing in the holiday. And if somebody's too poor to afford a meal, so what does he have? So, it was a, it was a, a known day that poor people were well taken care of. And the last command is a party. With wine, they're supposed to be wine at the party, and the reason is because the whole story has wine by parties. The first story when Vastius killed wines at the party. Esther makes two parties for, for the king and for Haman. Also wine at the party. So this is a way of remembering all the miracles that took place by this party. So a boy in class asked me today. Uh, people know we've talked about in the past children and adults dress up on Purim, costumes. So, a boy, cla- boy raises his hand today and he says, why do we wear costumes? So, the truth is, I knew it was going to take me a few minutes, and uh, it was class. I was supposed to study, but it was such a good time for a good lesson on the story of Purim. I said, you know what, I'll tell you the story. So, if you look at the whole story, and that's really what I've been trying to accomplish through the whole story. Um, the story is a, is, a, is a hidden miracle. Things turn on a dime. Everybody, Haman thinks he's in control. He thinks he can destroy the Jewish people. He doesn't realize the whole story is going to turn on his head, and he's going to lose. So, but the miracle is done in a hidden way. No one saw it coming. But when we relook at the whole story, we see how Haman had one plan. Haman thought the 14th of Adar is a great day. And now he finds out the 14th of Adar is a terrible day, because it became a holiday for us. Right? You can't see the miracle out in front of everybody. You gotta see the whole story, the way it's written, to recognize that God is pulling all the strings. So whether we call that turning over or or hidden, and any of those things, when we wear a mask, when we wear a costume, we're we're not who we normally are. We're pretending to be someone else, and that reminds us of the entire Purim story. So that's a reason why children and adults. At least that was the original reason. I can't tell you if that's why they're still doing it, but certainly that's a reason for Purim. Um, I tell you what, um, I may have more things on Purim, but I saw this great article. I have a friend who sends me um, articles once in a while. He's, a, he's a, an English principal on the East Coast, and this was just such a nice story. I'm going to read it, even though I'm wearing my contacts. So l- listen up, hopefully we'll finish it, but the lesson is fantastic. So, there are two classical music songwriters, a guy, Joe, John Schmidt, Stephen Nelson. You do know them. You don't know them. They included the following message with the recent release of their music, and it's, it's worth reminding, this, uh, reminding us about this for our children, for our students. It's fantastic. Listen to this. We believe each and every one of us is born with divine potential, infinite possibility, and an inextinguishable spark of immortal flame. Then come the limits. They come from all kinds of places. Where, when, how we grow up, how many people tell us we can, how many people tell us we can't, um, our imagination in the beginning, I guess when we're children, has us painting purple trees and iron skies, depicting our numerous dreams. Then we're told that trees and skies aren't supposed to look that way, <laughs> whether by people what experience, right? And, uh, or experience we're told to grow up, we lose the limitless innocence of a child's mind, we begin believing the naysayers, we place limits on ourselves. In an inexhaustible effort to satiate our doubts and defend against disappointments, we smother the spark. But we're not meant for the cold dark. Our blood is warm. Our spirits are made of light. Nothing can stifle the invincible summer within us. Nothing. you got to catch this message. It's fantastic. We are limitless. Fear of failure keeps us from walking the high wire, but without the lows, there's no highs. We think success should look something like this or that, but we don't realize the character uses success and failure interchangeably. That failure is a label we temporarily stamp on success, which we don't understand. We are limitless. That's the message. As we rotate through life cycles of elation and despair, sometimes we face the sun, sometimes we face never-ending stars that stretch on forever. But the light within us never goes out. We may extend our reach so far away from us that we forget. We only need to reach within to discover what we're looking for. We are children of a divine destiny. The world would have us box ourselves in, but our souls would have a sword. We are limitless. That is such a great message that I couldn't uh, leave it by and not talk about it. So... on our special Purim show, remember you are limitless. Remember the story. God's hand is in everything. He's taking care of you. You just have to go out there. You gotta be. You will be successful. You are limitless. Just a great message to think about. Um, so I'm wishing all my friends, all my listeners, enjoy Purim. Make sure you take time with the kids, have a good time with the kids. And, but it's here's my music. It's time to wrap up. So thank you to our wonderful sponsors and listeners. You know I couldn't do it without you. Thank you to my wonderful production team, Tony, Kelsey, Zach, Angel. I hope I've left you with some food for thought. Until next week, I am Rabbi Sweet Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk to our new radio media. And until next week, don't forget to think about it.